Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. I'm the medical director for Pinnacle and I'm delighted to once again be chatting to my colleague Dave Mabelstone. Looking forward to a little bit of um, education. Um, Dave, do you want to tell us about yourself? Uh, kia ora tato. I'm an old GP. Um, getting to the end of his useful life, <laughs> accelerated by all sorts of um, peripheral events. But uh, but I still have an interest in in didn't have an interest in medicine uh, and patient safety. And the goal of this of this snippet really is to try and select bits and pieces that come across everybody's desks um, in the in the huge flood of stuff that we get, and to try and sort out a bit of stuff that could be useful from a practical perspective. Uh, you you may be getting old as we all are. Hopefully, they, we are all of us are continuing to get old. Uh, they are, uh, but um, you're certainly not beyond your usefulness, Dave. Uh, not, have to talk to me about these peripheral events. <laughs> 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 but, um, uh, so actually, we're a little bit behind, aren't we? So this is April's um, update. So apologies because we had um, holidays to deal with as well. So that's right. Lots of short yeah. weeks. Um, yeah, lots of short weeks. Yeah. But yeah, just um, the first uh, area we're starting in is a very, the very glamorous area of syphilis. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it's on the up and up. Uh, so a recent uh, Te Whatawaikato Waikato newsletter notes there's been a sharp increase in notifications during 2022, uh, particularly in the upper half of the North Island. Um, and it's largely due to a sharp rise in reported cases among men. So um, the um, uh, incidence of syphilis um, amongst men who have sex with women has more than doubled uh, between quarter one 2022 and quarter three 2022 and infectious syphilis notifications among Maori uh, men who have sex with women has more than tripled uh, wow. and also there's been a significant increase in uh, amongst men who have sex with men um, and probably of, of very significant concern is that um, half the about half the women uh, in quarter three who um, were notified to have syphilis uh, amongst those who have sex with men were pregnant uh, and con congenital syphilis notifications remain high with Maori ethnicity um, continuing to be overrepresented in maternal uh, and congenital syphilis cases. So it's an, it's an equity issue and it's a, as well as being a health issue. Um, Do you so, know whether that people were being picked up during the antenatal screening? Well, that, one of the problems is that they may not be picked up with the routine first antenatal screen, but then become at risk during the pregnancy and uh, are then not tested at any subsequent time during the pregnancy and therefore the the um, opportunity to, to detect it is missed. And that kind of forms a basis for um, the current recommended testing situations, recommended uh, testing for syphilis situations. So these are outlined in some detail in health pathways. Um, but uh, include all patients having a routine sexual health check and then a repeat test at three months from the time of last sexual intercourse if there's particular concern they may have been exposed quite recently. 
from the pregnancy point of view, all pregnant women at the first antenatal bloods, which which hopefully most women are getting, but offer rescreening between 28 to 38 weeks gestation for women at increased risk. And they're defined as women who have had a new sexual partner during pregnancy, uh, more than one sexual partner during pregnancy, STI diagnosed during pregnancy, or whose partner is diagnosed with an STI during the pregnancy. Mm. So those are the, those are the uh, women that, that need to be targeted um, to try and get this incidence of congenital syphilis down. Um, all men who have sex with men, especially if HIV positive and probably should be having at least annual syphilis serology. Uh, any rash or genital symptoms in men who have sex with men. Um, yeah, uh, herpes simplex, genital ulcers, um, atypical or non-healing genital ulcers. Again, check for syphilis because of its um, tendency to be the great masquerader. Uh, any unusual clinical presentations like lymphadenopathy, unexplained abnormal liver function tests, alopecia, uh, and pyrexia of unknown origin. Um, and obviously patients have had sexual contact with a person diagnosed with syphilis. So, sorry, um, is it saying there, so if you've got a somebody who has alopecia? Uh, should... I, no, no, I wouldn't say everybody with alopecia, but if you've got a, an unexplained Kind of an unexplained constellation of symptoms that could possibly be consistent with syphilis. Yeah, and, and I guess particularly if there's if there's any any indication the patient could be at risk, have a low threshold for testing for syphilis. Is the yeah. message I got from it. Just think about think about syphilis. So um, they they call it here the great pretender. I've, I've heard it called the great masquerader. Yeah. Um, but the you know the importance is that um, early treatment um, prevents those awful long term sequelae, the neurological uh, and other organic sequelae of, of tertiary syphilis. And there's excellent management guidelines, um, both in health pathways, but particularly in the Aotearoa New Zealand STI management guidelines. Yeah. And I'll just put a plug in for those guidelines because they're updated regularly, available online with the links in the um, snippets, beautifully set out um, and just really practical and, and helpful for all sorts of STIs, plus, um, you know, uh, recurrent candidiasis, um, other sort of sexual health issues, re recurrent BV, et cetera. Yeah. So the, um, that statement at the start in Health Path is all patients have a routine sexual health check. Um, how, you know, is that something that, um, we should be doing when we're doing a CDRA or a, is it is it how when they say all? I think it's all patients who come in requesting a sexual health check. Right. It okay. should be routine to do um, syphilis serology as part of that. Okay. Yeah. Yes, I understand. Yeah. But so part I, of it. Oh, I see. So it's about it's saying, okay, not not all patients should have a regular sexual health check, but anybody that's having a sexual health check should have the surveillance. That's right. That's right. Okay. But ha having said that, yeah, having said that, we should perhaps be more offering offering sexual health checks more frequently to potential at risk yeah. um, clientele. But, uh, yeah. And again, it, it's something that um, Maori has particular sensibilities around, and it's something that, um, you know, if you have um, uh, a really good uh, Relationships about it's about being able to communicate and to um, to connect with people, but potentially you know, that starts with the use of today. I correctly pronounce, pronouncing somebody's name. Um, you know, actually, 
those little things can make big differences when people are wanting to talk about potentially need to talk about something that's um that's very intimate like this um so that's just one way that we can help to address the inequity yeah and i think bringing up the issue of congenital syphilis in in hapu mama as well that yeah. might be at risk you know that this is to protect your 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 child potentially yeah. rather than just being a um a, your own individual thing yeah. Increasingly now across New Zealand and certainly across the Pinnacle Network, we're starting to see the a funded second trimester or third trimester um, health check um, available for uh, in general practice. Um, so there's, there's certainly for, for Pinnacle, there's more news to come around that. Um, but um, the, we should um, definitely be raising these um, high risk uh, parameters as part of that uh, as well. Absolutely. Um, so if you happen not to have picked up the syphilis and it's 20 years later, the next section goes on to verifying death. <laughs> <laughs> and this this um, this arose out of, out of an observation Joe um, came up with uh, on reviewing the health, the Ministry of Health guidelines for verifying death. Um, so it does note that um, medical practitioners, nurse practitioner, practitioners, registered nurses, enrolled nurses, midwives, EMTs, paramedics and intensive care paramedics are authorised by the chief coroner to verify death, including deaths which meet the criteria for reporting to the coroner. So there's, there's no reason for you to get called up at three o'clock in the morning to the rest home to verify death because a nurse and even an enrolled nurse, it says here, um, are entitled to... Um, um, to make that call, yeah. Uh, but um, the process of verifying death—this is news to me—but but essentially, you can verify death when the body shows signs of rigor mortis and incompatible with life, or the body has visible injuries incompatible with life, um, which I presume means no head or, or something similar, or the body yeah. shows signs of decomposition and incompatible with life. But alternatively, this is the exact wording, health practitioners can verify death once they have undertaken two assessments, a minimum of 10 minutes apart, to establish death. Uh, and the health practitioner must confirm the following, no signs of breathing for one minute, requires exposure of the entire chest and abdomen, no mm. palpable central pulse, um, no audible heart sounds, pupils dilated and unreacted to light, uh, and that requires a focal light source, for example, a torch, and where available, a cardiac monitor or defibrillator is used and shows asystole. And the rationale for this is uh, something called the Lazarus reflex, which is um, a person may be in asystole for, for some minutes and then spontaneously develop return of a beating heart. So obviously this doesn't apply to the, you know, the rest home patient you're called to that's actually been deceased for three hours by the time you get there. Um, but, and in some ways it represents perhaps a gap between um, prescribed practice and common practice, or even sensible practice necessarily. But um, uh, I thought it was interesting just to, to uh, or on your behalf, to present that. Uh, it, was very, it was very interesting to, to think about how many times I've verified somebody's death um, on the basis of a single examination. Um, and, um, you know, certainly not exposing the entire chest and abdomen. Um, you know, so the, but these are the prescribed uh, parameters around that. And this is about verifying death, not completing the death certificate, of course. Mm. Um, you know. 
and I must admit, I yet to, I've yet to get any complaints in my HDSEG work about uh, incorrect verification of deaths. So um, that may yet come one day, who knows? Uh, but, but it does segue. Hopefully, segue hopefully not from the patient. That's no, right. Well, it's likely to be from the patient, though, isn't it? The, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, this segues into just a, a um, recent um, update of death documents. So medical practitioners and nurse practitioners can now use death document documents to report deaths to the coroner. So previously, the GPs um, phoned the coroner to report a death, but they're now encouraged to report the death using death documents. And what it does is it, um, it takes you uh, through a series of screening tests and um, questions to guide the practitioner uh, as to whether they're required to um, complete and submit a coroner report or complete a medical certificate of cause of death because the death doesn't actually need to be reported to the coroner. But yeah. I think one of the most common reasons that we will be thinking about reporting it to the coroner if we're not happy to sign the death certificate ourselves, uh, and if we're not happy to sign the death certificate, um, there's capacity within the, the death documents to provide further details which are requested. Um, and um, the, coron of, the coroner's office is notified immediately and the death is reported to Te Whata Ora so that the NHI record can be updated with the date of death. Um, the death is registered in the report, uh, uh, registers the report and contact uh, the, the Department of Justice states NIIO, which is the sort of coroner's practical aspect, will register the report and contact the practitioner by phone within two hours to confirm whether they have taken the case. If the coroner decides to investigate the death, you must notify the police of the death if they're not already involved. If that makes so sense. Had, so. Yeah, yeah, I had a look at this and um, actually didn't have a dummy patient to use. So I started to complete my own death certificate. <laughs> and to report myself to the coroner. And then I, I, I bottled out because uh, it was sort of getting a little bit, um, I was thinking, oh, I'm not sure whether I'll be able to just cancel this at um, at some point and then not not report it. God. Um, the, cat jumps on the cat jumps on the keyboard and pushes the submit button. You're in yeah. trouble, aren't you? <laughs> So yeah, so I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to do that. But it, the are you so as you're completing the death certificate, if you say I, I'm I may want to talk to the coroner, then takes you through a decision tree. Um, That's right. Okay, because I didn't get that far into it because I was I sort of bottled out before then. Um, so so it could be something like you've you've been called to the rest home because your patient fell out of bed three hours ago and is now died um yeah. having had an episode of chest pain immediately beforehand you're pretty confident it was an mi but because they'd fallen out of bed um does this mean it could might be a coroner's case and they will so you answer the questions and they will say no it doesn't need to be reported because of the age of the patient etc yeah. etc um, yeah but i think if you if your reason for reporting is you are not happy to sign the death certificate full stop it will then take you through to complete a more detailed report and provide notes uh, medical history, etc., and then the that that is when the coroner will get back to you within two hours to state whether they're taking on the um, the case or not. So um, the situation that will arise in is if the the police ring and say um, we don't have any concerns, but you have concerns. I'm um, I'm going to notify to the coroner. The coroner then gets back to you, gets back to you as the provider within two hours to say yes, we're going to take this on or not, and then you have to get back to the police about that. So it's going to 
um, where previously we would just ring the coroner's office and get an immediate response. Yep. Um, I can see that this is more efficient from the coroner's perspective. It'll provide them with more information, uh, which will provide a better evidence base around it but it is going to be a little bit more of a imposition on our time as much it is but hopefully we won't be needing to access it too often no no assuming all goes well okay uh going uh, in a different direction prescribing um and this is just a, an update on opioid prescribing and really to uh push a, a recent bpac article on opioid prescribing again links are in the um in the snippets um which uh, reiterates a lot of what I'm sure we all know already, um, but does include some helpful uh, resources to make doing the right thing a little easier to do. So cool. it starts off um, uh, with provision of an oxycodone prescribing audit. So you can see how you compare um, and whether your prescribing seems to be appropriate um, by completing the audit. Um, there's also a link to the Live Live Well with Pain website. It's a UK website, which you need to register with, but has a huge amount or huge number of uh, resources, um, pamphlets, all sorts of things on helping your patients deal with pain, telling them about their medications, um, uh, alternatives to um, to medication for pain management, etc. So. I've again I've linked to the site uh, but yeah it looks looks brilliant and I've spoken to some colleagues from the UK who used it frequently uh, when they were over there mm. um, it includes a um, editable pain management plan template so this is one you can open uh, and then save when the patient comes in uh, and it, it really encourages um, good behavior uh on on both sides of the prescribing uh network so making sure that you have goals set with your patient um treatment goals time frames um to, uh, when reviews are going to take place objective um ways of assessing response to the medication etc uh and from the outset a plan to reduce and stop opioid use and we're talking about chronic non-malignant pain obviously rather than um, palliative care um but yeah, again, quite a handy resource to uh, have access to. Um, so that some of the key recommendations were around, if you're initiating opioids, um, around establishing a treatment plan from the outset, uh, which includes measurable goals and timeframes. Um, you may want to um, have a formal signed opioid contract. And again, there's a contract, uh, pre-formatted contract, uh, um, that you can download and have the patient sign and then scan uh, if, that, if you feel that's appropriate. Um, it talks about uh, preference for immediate release formulations due to the lower risk of sedation and respir respiratory depression and overdose, particularly during initiation, uh, and that modified release opioids are a strong risk factor for opioid dependence, um, but modified release formulations might still be considered in certain scenarios, depending on cl clinical judgment. Um, other stuff is pretty much G-basic, you know, low, lowest potency for as short a length of time as possible. Um, uh, an emphasis on ensuring, if a strong opioid's needed, ensuring morphine is trialed first before pr prescribing oxycodone. Um, and 
auto, almost automatically providing a laxative if uh, opioid use is going to exceed two to three days. Um, so the um, the other thing there's there's a link to is to the TAPO publication on substance withdrawal management guidelines for medical and nursing practitioners, which is a helpful resource that covers withdrawal from not just opioids, but benzos, sulfoclone, et cetera, and gives really good, again, good practical advice um, to help patients in those situations. And again, a link in the in the snippets to those. It's really interesting. I, I think with the workload and workforce pressures that we're seeing as a lot of people are having virtual consultations around this or having a an external team member who's managing repeat prescription requests and um the policy it's an opportunity really to have a robust policy around opioid prescribing to say you know these patients have to have a virtual or an in-person consultation when we're looking at um opioid repeat prescriptions and um you know in that consultation here are the resources that can be used and applied um but um yeah i i see a variety of of practices around this um some of which leave quite a bit to be desired to be honest yeah, yeah I've, I've seen the whole spectrum of of opioid management so one of the best um Practices I saw uh, the 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 practice it was a largish practice I think about eight doctors but um, it had a panel an opioid panel three doctors and um, patients were told when when therapy was initiated that if if the treatment goals weren't met the panel would decide uh, what what appropriate management ongoing management was so it wasn't always you with the crying patient sitting in front of you saying my pain's terrible I need more more oxycontin or whatever. There was a, a pre-acknowledged uh, um, fact that if the situation arose, then the panel would advise, and it becomes a panel decision rather than the the individual doctor decision. Yeah. yeah. So just taking yeah. that stress off the off off you as a practitioner. Yeah, yeah. I think we uh, I've certainly introduced um, opiate contracts with patients who've become where it's become an issue, and I've wanted to then introduce. Uh, you know, withdrawal regime and 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 taking that effects, but it's actually far better to do it at the on, very onset of the prescription and where people are starting the medication for non non cancer pain. Um, uh, it's it should be few and far between anyway. Um, but if you if you do it at that initial consultation, then um, you're preempting a problem in the future for yourself or your colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the um, the sample contract, I think, brought up the issues of, um, yes, I, you know, things like I am responsible for the security of my opioid medicine. I acknowledge that lost, misplaced or stolen medicines or prescriptions for opioids will not be replaced. Yeah. If that's clear from the outset, you don't, you don't, you don't get stuck in that situation of every third script is because my handbag got stolen or they fell into the sink yeah. or whatever. Um, and also whether you um, want to be doing um, urine drug screening to make sure they are actually taking the medication that's being prescribed yeah. uh, can be covered in that as well. Yeah. The, I saw tramadol um, as um, being highlighted again as a, a drug of dependency and abuse um, that um, where it has been, you know, has been heralded as a safer 
um, version. But all of these are, are pro-drugs for morphine, aren't they? I was surprised to see trimorphine um, before oxycontin, um, unless there's a documented allergy or intolerance there, to because oxycodone pro-drug, you know, metabolizes into morphine. So if you're intolerant of morphine, then you're going to be intolerant of oxycodone, surely. Uh, I don't know. I think... Oh, it's one for me to look yeah, up. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think one of the, one of the reasons is, um, yeah, I, I guess the, re the reasons for, for making that recommendation are around cost and patient perception that oxycontin is, is somehow much milder than morphine and therefore... Oh, wow. Why not take it sort of thing? But this, um, yeah. this, this leads nicely, I think, to the next uh, topic, which is the Land Transport Drug Driving Amendment Act 2022, which ah, yes. has recently come into force. Um, so this raises all sorts of issues, but essentially um, the key changes to the act, or the amendments, um, have resulted in a schedule uh, containing 25 listed qualifying drugs. So there are four listed drugs and 21 prescription medicines, uh, yeah. which have been identified as having the highest risk to road safety. And uh, it means now that um, drivers stopped for, with um, suspicion of, of impairment um, undergo a behavioural test, roadside behavioural test for impairment, and then may be required to take a blood test to check for presence of these drugs. And there are now specific concentrations for these drugs um, above which the um, driver, if their if their serum levels above these um, predefined levels, um, they may be taken to court for um, for driving under the um, under the influence. So yeah, the schedule... there's, there's two different levels, isn't there? There's a sort of a um, an impaired level and then an un, unacceptable level or something. That's right. Tolerance, uh, tolerance level. Tolerance, yeah. Um, uh, so high risk level high and risk tolerance risk level. Yeah. But some of these drugs, um, codeine, these are the scheduled drugs, include codeine, dihydrocodeine, uh, lorazepam, um, uh, zopiclone, tramadol. Uh, so these are commonly prescribed drugs. And I guess the issue arises uh, as to our responsibility for telling patients um, that, you know, reinforcing that they shouldn't be um, driving if they feel that these drugs could cause, have the potential to cause impairment and they shouldn't be driving if they feel they could be impaired. Um, you'd think that the, the, the sorts of doses we're prescribing aren't likely to push them into the into the um, high risk range, but there are so many variables. Um, you know, I, I know that I'm a, a slow metabolizer of, of opioids, so I'm going to get um, you know different drug levels at different times compared to a rapid metabolizer. Yeah, but that'll then depend on whether you've had the medication with food or with alcohol, yeah. or if the particularly with. And I think one of the, the key things here is the combination of things. So if somebody's taking their uh, codeine regularly as part of their pain relief, but also needing um, a sleeping tablet to help them with the pain at night and helping them to sleep, the com combination, combining that with a little shot of whiskey at night as well, you know, they may be quite drug impaired in the morning when they, you know, need to drive to work. Um, 
the and it's that that warning people about the combination of things it's just making all of that very explicit i think yes. i looked at um i asked the pharmacists around uh, whether there was any consistency around um the serum levels based on the doses that we're giving and there's sort of an expectation that my, if the people are sticking to the dose that is prescribed then serum levels mostly will be okay but you elevate the serum levels according to tolerance and um the an, an impact so you know yeah. I, i've certainly got patients who in the past who've been taking quite huge doses of um opiates for you know chronic back pain um who would have had well over those levels yeah um but not necessarily overtly impaired not necessarily That's overtly a, impaired yeah yeah but the the safe advice for health healthcare professionals so i'm quoting the medsafe advice please discuss with your patients whether their medicines both prescription and over the counter could impair driving um, mm. uh, advise patients to check whether they have any side effects that could impair driving and not to drive if these occur uh check when you're prescribing check the medicine data sheet uh, regarding the effects of a medicine on driving and make sure you're aware of the medicines listed in schedule five um and that kind of ties in i guess with the medical council statement on good prescribing practice which includes ensure that the patient is fully informed uh receives appropriate information in a way they can understand um including about the adverse effects expected risks adverse effects benefits benefits and costs of each option of each option um but there are again quite a few resources um that um waka kotahi provide for both consumers and health professionals regarding impaired driving and there's also a uh, a cme online course you can do if you want uh, eligible for cpd points which is on substance impaired driving it's put out through uh, waka kotahi nice i don't know if i can the, um, yeah I don't know whether the alert systems in our PMSs um indicate you know could impair driving just to remind us the um yeah I, I mean we theoretically we meant to have the knowledge or yes. get the knowledge if we're not sure um, yeah it, it is only 25 and they are ones that you would think well that's that's probably going to impair driving really is not yeah and some of them we won't be prescribing um yeah. or some some are illicit obviously as well yeah um but the um i i think the the important thing i guess it just comes back to the our responsibility as far as ensuring patients are adequately informed about the drugs that they're being prescribed and and again the use of the um nzdf patient information leaflets um can be quite handy and time saving in that respect yeah and yeah. and i must can't, I'm, i'm not sure though that it, i don't think it automatically records in the pms that you have provided that you've printed off and provided the leaflet um no it doesn't i think i think it, um i think you have to you have to make a note in the in the record to say that yeah uh, so do you mean that i should i should stop popping a couple of tramadol out of the drug cupboard before i go home after work <laughs> then Dave? Is that something I should is, should I stop doing that? Yeah, depends whether it's before or after the whiskey. But um, <laughs> no, I think the one interesting thing that came out of this though was you know the little labels which you see um, on on prescription bottles. You know, um, do not operate machinery or don't don't take with alcohol or whatever. Yeah, little stick-on labels. So I, I thought they were actually required 
by law. Um, but on looking into it, they're called cautionary advisory labels. They're promoted oh. by the New Zealand Pharmaceutical Society, but I couldn't see in any of the drug medicines legislation that they're actually a compulsory requirement. Wow, so that's interesting. So the, um, you can't rely on the pharmacist to be doing that in order to cover off this patient information? Not necessarily. I mean, it seems to be a widespread habit, um, yeah. but, but I guess we can't assume anything. Um, it comes back, as you say, to that uh, when you initiate a medication, printing off the, the drug um, information and giving it to people and saying, you know, this is, and then if that, even if that's common practice, even if you don't record it in the body of notes, I did this, then you can say, this is my common practice. And it's adds some weight to the defensibility of it. Yeah, it? yeah. But a hotkey, you know, a hotkey that might just say, printed off PIL or yeah. you know, gave to patient or something like that could be uh, could be useful. Yeah, okay. Um, number and five, I was only joking about the tramadol <laughs> before I, I don't steal stuff from the drug cupboard. That's good just in case I, Just in case anybody else is listening to this. The medical council on the, just got you down <laughs> for your... Uh, <laughs> your review uh barbitone brand change i didn't realize there were still patients taking phenobarb but yeah the is notified um that there are about 400 people in new zealand taking the drug um the the manufacturer of the of the version that's currently supplied has stopped making them and the current stock is expected to run out in july so these are the 15 and 30 milligram tabs so i think after the um debacle with previous um, anticonvulsant changes, Pharmac have been very particular about um, managing this change. Yeah. Uh, so what they're recommending is that patients, and again, I mean, most of us won't have any, but some might have one or two, um, patients taking phenobarb tablets for epilepsy will require alerting to the impending brand change and required actions. Uh, and two appointments with a healthcare provider are needed at one month before, which they suggest is June 2023, and one month after the brand change. Um, and um, uh, serum levels of phenobarbital are required um, to check for any, any um, changes from usual three weeks prior to the change, within the week prior to the change, within the first week of the change, and one month after the change. And again, I looked into this and um, the reference ranges are for trough levels with the test taken shortly before the scheduled dose. Um, and the so, reason for the two um, tests is so that you can get a proper baseline. Um, if there's a lot of variation between the dose, the, the levels three weeks and in the week prior to the change, then you need to be increasingly cautious about those people and the brand change. Um, because their metabolism is um, having quite a varying impact on the serum levels of the medication. Um, so yeah, it was really it was a yeah it was quite interesting. But I think consistent. I mean, the t the timing of the tests through those four tests is obviously quite important as well to make sure we're getting the same trough levels. Yeah. Not not three hours yeah. before one day and and one hour before the next day. Yeah. The next and test. Expecting, um, I think it's less than 10% variation between the baseline prior to the brand change and after the brand change. Um, and if it's a greater than 10% variation, then again, more monitoring and uh, potentially altering the, the dose 
in consultation with a neurologist, I would assume. So there's quite a lot of detailed information on the Heiko uh, Haringa website on the whole changeover process. Um, but quite importantly, I think funding is available from Pharmac to cover the, the co-payment for the two visits associated with the change. So cost shouldn't be an issue for the patient. And interestingly, Wakakotahi recommends, doesn't require, but recommends that patients consider a voluntary driving stand down period of eight weeks following an anti-epileptic medication brand change. I hadn't picked that up, but that is that, that is that in the um, Pharmac? I think that was in the Heiako uh, Haringa website oh, wonderful. Um, data. So, uh, uh, and after all that, um, let's take a breath. So the last bit uh, of uh, stuff today was um, from a recent Goodfellow gem that looked at two ways of breathing to improve mood and anxiety based on um, Stanford University research, uh, which reported how the breathing exercises, which we talked about in a moment for five minutes per day, were better for mood and anxiety than mindfulness meditation, where the breathing's just watched. So the two, um, the two methods, the first one's called sighing, which I think I probably do it for at least five minutes a day <laughs> at various times, but it's characterized by deep breaths, large breath, and then an extra inhalation followed by extended, relatively longer exhales. And that's been associated with psychological relief, shifts in autonomic states, and a resetting of respiratory rate, if, particularly if you're a, a chronic um, hyperventilator. So and you do the, that for five five minutes? Yeah, but I think I'd probably be falling down and dizzy. It by the end dizzy, of the, yeah. Yeah. But I think it's that it's, you're not hyperventilating because you're extending the, the exhalation phase, right? as well as having a super inhalation. Mm -hmm. um, but the second one, which appealed to me slightly more, was, is box breathing or tactical breathing, um, which military members have used for stress regulation and performance improvement. So essentially, you inhale for a count of four, hold for a count of four, exhale for a count of four, and then hold again for a count of four before inhaling. Uh, breathe in through your nose because that apparently releases nitric oxide and uh, out through the mouth. Um, and one of my colleagues suggests you get the patient, if, you if you're teaching this to patients, you get them to focus on a square or rectangular object and just go up each side as they do each phase of the, of the box breathing. That's a good idea. So if we had five minutes after each patient to do some breathing and relax, it would be, the world would be a happy place, but, um, oh, look, I've, I've, I've done this just, um, even doing it once or twice doing the box breathing. Um, or you can do it during a consultation if, as a grounding exercise if you're getting distracted or feeling angry. Um, you know, the, um, the other thing I do in that situation is just sort of wriggle my toes and, get, and, and ground myself, you know, just to sort of say, you know, you know the, the why. And it gives you that opportunity just to think, well, why am I getting me some of this emotional response in this situation and, and become a little bit more reflective rather than involved in the in the um in the emotion of it yeah um, i tend to do the deep sighs but i think they're um a <laughs> reflex i think that that so my my practice used to say if it was a, if i was a good day if i was um wandering around singing which i i didn't realize i was doing but i sort of hum and i'd sing to myself when i'm when i'm in a good mood but if it was if i was a sighing day then they knew to you know sort of back off any sort of requests for increase <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I think five, five minutes of box breathing before you, when you've seen your last patient, before you start your inbox, could be quite, 
quite helpful yeah. perhaps. But also really good simple techniques to be able to pass on to patients um, for stress management. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, uh, that's it really for the day, for the one. Thank you, Dave. Absolutely brilliant as ever. The, um, uh, starting with syphilis, moving on to one of the consequences of syphilis, which is uh, was death and dying and registering um, registering the death. And then another potential cause of death and dying, sort of opioid prescribing um, and um, drug driving as well, also potentially related. Um, the um, If we get the phenobarbitone wrong, then, you know, that might have tragic consequences. Um, and if that isn't all causing you stress, then I don't know what would. So do some box breathing um, after you've finished listening to the podcast. Hey, I also realized that you can also claim CPD points um, for listening to this. If you go on to uh, Tefeke, the, um, the College of GPs website, and just record this as self-learning under medical education. And um, if you like, sort of record a little reflection in there. Um, you can get yourself some CPD points as well, which I was... Um, I think an added bonus. Thanks, Dave. Cool, Matewa. Thank you, Tiano. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Ka kite anō.